Well, good morning again. <laughs> that was funny. On Friday, December the 29th, 1972, Eastern Airlines Flight 401, a Lockheed TriStar 1 jet, left uh, JFK Airport en route to uh, Miami at about 9.20 p.m. Flight was routine for about two hours until approximately 11.32 p.m. when it began to approach uh, Miami International Airport. After lowering the uh, landing gear, the first officer noticed that the landing gear indicator, a uh, little green light, had not illuminated. And so there was quick discussion in the cockpit as to whether or not the landing gear had actually uh, been deployed. And uh, after much investigation, uh, they figured out it was due to a burned out light bulb that the light did not come on, but at this particular time they weren't aware of that. The landing gear could have been manually lowered either way, so it really wasn't an issue, except that the pilots in the cockpit made it an issue. They radioed the tower that they were going to abort their landing, and they asked for instructions to circle the airport. The tower cleared them uh, to pull out of its descent and to climb to about 2,000 feet and to fly west over the darkness of the Everglades while they uh, figured out what the problem was. Cockpit crew proceeded to remove the light assembly, and the flight engineer was dispatched into the avionics bay, uh, whereby he could do a visual check to see if the landing gear had, in fact, been deployed. <clears throat> As they climbed to altitude, 2,000 feet, uh, for about the next 80 seconds, the plane maintained level flight, and then it dropped about 100 feet. Flew level for about two more minutes, after which it began a descent so gradual that None of the pilots in the cockpit were aware of it. In the next 70 seconds, the plane lost another 250 feet, which was enough to trigger the altitude warning chime that was located underneath the engineer's desk, but the engineer was not there because he had been dispatched to check the avionics bay. At that particular point, uh, due to recordings from the cockpit, we have no indication that either of the other pilots heard the altitude warning chime and they begin to initiate a 180-degree turn. And the uh, pilot, who was uh, Captain Robert Loft, uh, asked that the plane be put on autopilot so that he could give his full attention to this indicator light that had not come on when the landing gear had been deployed. And so the plane was put on autopilot, but somewhere in the midst of the shuffling in the cockpit, it was later discovered that his knee more than likely had hit the autopilot button and switched it uh, from uh, the autopilot that he had put it on to um, another type of, of autopilot uh, that meant he had to be engaged in the process. As they initiated yet another 180-degree turn, the first officer was the first to notice the discrepancy, and seconds later the plane flew into the ground at 227 miles per hour, 19 miles from the end of the runway at Miami International Airport. It was the first crash of a wide-bodied aircraft in U.S. history, and at the time, it was the deadliest crash in U.S. history. The National Transportation Safety Board did a thorough investigation, and they discovered that the autopilot, again, had been inadvertently switched from altitude hold to control wheel steering, uh, more than likely by the pilot's knee bumping it. Their final report cited the cause of the crash as pilot error, and this is what they wrote, they said, the failure of the flight crew to monitor the flight instruments during the final four minutes of flight 
and to detect an unexpected descent soon enough to prevent impact with the ground. Preoccupation with a malfunction of the nose landing gear position indicating system distracted the crew's attention from the instruments and allowed the descent to go unnoticed. There's an old pilot's proverb that says, fly the plane first. Fly the plane first. In other words, everything else takes a back seat to flying the plane. Nothing is as important if you're a pilot than flying the plane. There is no priority that supersedes flying the plane. Fly the plane first. C.S. Lewis put it this way in the spiritual realm. He said, put first things first and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first and we lose both first and second things. This morning we're beginning a new series simply called Prove It, during which we're going to talk about first things for the next three weeks. Because the truth is we believe to the core of our being that Christ has explicitly called New Community Church to love God, love people, and to turn the world upside down. And as such, we believe that that calling, that vision, supersedes anything and everything else. This is that which we cannot afford to get wrong. This is that which we cannot afford to miss or to sideline or to allow to be crowded out. And so we're going to spend three weeks just sort of unpacking exactly what it looks like to love God, love people, and to turn the world upside down. And that's going to be fairly straightforward. And such will be that. But what if Jesus, what if Jesus, having called us to love God, love people, and turn the world upside down, what if Jesus, in the midst of the series, were to ask you to prove it? What if he were to ask me? You say you love God, love people, and you say you want to be invested in turning the world upside down. Prove it. What if Jesus were to ask us to show him the evidence that loving God, loving people, and turning the world upside down really is the first thing for you and me and for New Community Church? What if he were to require us to corroborate that which we say is most important to us? Because here's the deal. It's real easy to say that our top priority as a church, it's real easy to say that our top priority as a follower of Jesus, it's real easy to say that our top priority is loving God, loving people, and turning the world upside down. It's easy and inviting to print that statement on our website and for me to say it from the stage and for us to look and read it on the big screen. That's real easy for us to do. But what does that look like? What does that involve? How does it work? How might God measure our progress? If he's called us to this, then he's called us to accomplish it. God never calls us to something that he does not give us the wherewithal through him, through his spirit, through his word, through his power. He never calls us to something that we can't accomplish in partnership with him. And so by very nature of him saying, you guys are to be about loving God, loving people, and turning the world upside down, by very nature, that has to be doable. Not easy, but doable. Not simple, but doable. How would we know we're actually loving God? How do we know we're actually loving people? How do we know we're actually turning the world upside down? What would that look like? 
How might God be measuring our progress? How should we measure our progress? Because the truth is, it's real easy to make a claim. My dad can beat up your dad. To which when your best friend, when you're eight years old, said that to you, you said, prove it. You know, dads never got involved in this kind of discussion. It was always the kids. Prove it. People evolved from apes. Prove it. God created people. Prove it. If you will buy this toothpaste or these clothes or this car or this shampoo, you will be happy. Prove it. I love you. Prove it. I can change. Prove it. This doesn't look like what it looks like. Prove it. Love God, love people, turn the world upside down. Prove it. How many of you ever used the expression or heard the expression laying down the law? Doesn't seem to be as in vogue today as it was when I was like 10. What group of people on the planet use that expression more than any others? Dads and moms, yeah, parents. And they usually use it when they're not in a very good frame of mind. They say to Junior, or they say to the Lord, I'm going to lay down the law. What, what do they mean when they say, I'm going to lay down the law? What they mean is that what I'm about to say, the next words that come out of my mouth, are the most important words you will ever hear me say, and God help you if you don't do them. That's what we mean when we say we're laying down the law. To lay down the law narrows our point of focus. It, it boils everything down to its bare essence. It, it sheds everything that is peripheral or superfluous. On one occasion in the New Testament, Jesus was challenged to lay down the law by a group of religious leaders. If you have a Bible with you, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. There's a dialogue between Jesus and these religious leaders, these teachers, these rabbis, these, these scribes, in which they challenge him to lay down the law. The Bible says in chapter 22 of Matthew, verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, who was an expert in the law, decided to test Jesus with this question. He said, teacher... Which is the greatest commandment in the law? You need to understand about the Pharisees. The Pharisees had taken the law of Moses, which was uh, in their day known as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They had taken all the laws in the first five books of the Bible and they had boiled them down to 613 laws that needed to be obeyed. 248 positive laws, 365 negative laws. And the Pharisees spent the bulk of their time as religious leaders debating about these 613 laws. Specifically, which of these laws were heavy laws and which of these laws were light laws. Heavy laws were laws that were absolutely binding. You didn't break a heavy law. A light law was one of those laws that, you know, you should keep this, but if you don't really keep it, it's not going to be too bad for you. You, know, you. Don't commit murder. That's a heavy law. Don't speed on your camel through the streets of Jerusalem. That's a light law. You know, there's some grace there, you know. 
And so they would spend countless, countless hours debating among themselves as to which of the 613 laws were heavy laws and which were light laws. And then they went one step further. They would attempt to rank from 1 to 613 all of the 613 laws. And here's the deal. They never agreed on the ranking. Shock. You've got 613 different laws, and they sat around and they said, okay, I'm going to rank them. Here's how I would rank them from heaviest to lightest. Do, 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 do. And Pharisee number two said, nope, number seven. It's out of sync. I put number seven at 16. I put number 16 at 34, and 34 is number two, and number two is number 416. And they would debate countless hours as to the ranking of the 613 laws. And so the Pharisees decide to approach Jesus. They were very threatened by Jesus because Jesus was about grace. They were about law. Jesus was about love. They were about religion. Jesus was about so much that they were not about. And so they were threatened, and so they thought, you know, let's trap him. And so they asked him a question because in their thinking, Jesus was a teacher. He was a rabbi. Therefore, he must have his own ranking of what was heavy and what was light in the law. And they knew that Jesus' ranking would not mesh perfectly with their ranking because their rankings didn't mesh perfectly with their rankings. And so they figured that if we could get him to rank the 613 laws and his ranking deviated from what we thought was an appropriate ranking, we now have cause for accusation. And so they come to Jesus and they said, Hey, Jesus, what's the greatest law? What's the greatest commandment? In other words, we don't really want to know your 613 right now. Just tell us what the, the biggest one is, the greatest one is. Verse 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus said. And then he said, and a second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he makes an incredible statement. He says, all of the law and all of the prophets hang, hinge, revolve around, are based on, evolve from these two commandments. Now we need to understand that the first part of this command to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, was part was from a part of Scripture known as the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear, to hear. And the Shema included a number of Scripture passages from the Old Testament, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9, which says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house. (coughs) Excuse me. Houses and on your gates. This was part of what the Jews considered to be the greatest commandment. And this is what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. The Shema also included, though, Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 to 41. It says this. (coughs) The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. 
And you will have these tassels to look at, so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God and brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. We need to understand this morning that for the Pharisees, for the Jews, these words would have been the most familiar, the most quoted, the most memorized, the most copied, the most thought about, the most read, the most studied words in the Bible. They would have been the words that every Jew on the planet wouldn't have just known, but they would have recited these words twice a day from the time they could talk until the time they died. They would also have taken Exodus chapter 13 and along with the Shema would have written it out on little pieces of parchment and put it in little boxes. And the men during their prayer times would have strapped the boxes to their foreheads into their left arms. That's how important, that's how significant, that's how known these verses of Scripture were. So the Pharisees are attempting to ask Jesus, to trap Jesus with the single easiest question in the world to which anyone who had any understanding of God and any understanding of Scripture would have known the answer. It's like asking Michael Jordan, hey, what's the greatest sport? It's like asking Bill Gates, hey, what's the greatest computer operating system? It's like asking Clay Stevens, hey, what's the the greatest instrument? So when Jesus answers this meant to be a trick question, which is the greatest commandment, he's essentially saying that the greatest commandment is the one that each of you recites every day, twice a day, and have memorized and have known ever since you were little kids and in which you put in little boxes and wear on your foreheads and on your left arms, duh. The duh is like interpreted in there the greatest commandment is to love God the greatest commandment in Jesus's day was to love God the greatest commandment in our day is to love God the greatest commandment for the Pharisees was to love God the greatest commandment for Christians is to love God the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God and not just love him but to love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength in other words to love him with every ounce of your being. That's the greatest commandment. And this is not a theoretical love that Jesus talks about. This is not a textbook academic love. This is not a love that says, I believe God exists. Thomas Merton wrote, if you find God with great ease, perhaps it is not God you have found. Jesus says our love for our Heavenly Father is to be at once intelligent and feeling and thinking and willing and serving and seeking and obeying. He says it is a love that involves thought and sensitivity and intent and emotion and risk and action. It is a love that involves every ounce of who we are as human creatures. It is a love that involves our whole being. The words I love you can be said flippantly or they can be demonstrated. And there's a wide gap between the two. If asked, the Pharisees would have said, of course, we love God. 
They didn't demonstrate it. They didn't prove it. Jesus says, our love for our Heavenly Father is a love that requires everything you are, but that gives back in return everything you need to live this life that he has created you and me to live. Gregory of Nyssa wrote, Concepts create idols. Only wonder grasps anything. Wonder forms the basis of our love for God, not factual information. Wonder forms the foundation for our love for our Heavenly Father. That's why we sing amazing grace. That's why we sing amazing love. The fact that the God of the universe who holds everything in the palm of his hand has decided to love you and I, not because of anything we have done, could do, will do, but because he has deemed us valuable in and through his son Jesus. The fact that that is where we find ourselves is an amazing thing. That should cause love for our Father to literally overwhelm us and does except for the hardest and coldest and darkest of hearts. Too often we want to keep God in the theoretical realm. We want to debate God. We want to discuss God. We want to prove God. We want to look at the factual evidence for God. We want to argue about God. We want to know about God. And God says, no, I want you to know me. And to know him, we must know about him but we so stop short. We're more comfortable with concepts of God than with God as a father. We're more comfortable with the 613 laws about God than with fleshing out our love for the one who in Jesus has brought us into relationship with himself. I love what A.W. Tozer wrote. He said, left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can use him or at least know where he is when we need him. We want a God we can in some measure control. Do you realize that God didn't have to make you? He didn't have to make me. God didn't start the creative process on day one And then through some evolutionary weirdness say, okay, now I'll just push the autopilot button and let it go. Resulting in you and 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 me being some freak chance conglomeration of cells and molecules. He said, no. He said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to create a man. And he makes Adam. And he names Adam. And he put personality in Adam. And he put emotion in Adam. And he put desire in Adam. And he put free will in Adam. And he put beauty in Adam. And he put imagination and creativity in Adam. And he put power in Adam. And he put the power of choice in Adam. And then he said, oh, and I think I'll create a woman. Let's call her Eve. And most of us are fine up to that point, but we forget that we need to extrapolate to you and me. 
1964, actually it would have been in 1963, God decided, I'm going to create Mike. And he made me. And he made you. He thought you up. The Bible says he knit you together while you were in your mother's womb. The Bible says he knows you better than you know yourself. You think you know yourself and you think you know a lot. I think I know myself and I think I know a lot. The Bible says God knows us better. He thought you up. He created you. He put you together. He fashioned you. He decided that you would be who you are and that there would not be anyone else on the planet like you. And he did this not because he was bored. He did this out of a love for his creation. He infused thought and planning and creativity and imagination and life into you and me. And he chose to create value in us, not because of something we could do, but because of something his son, of his own initiative, out of obedience to the Father, did on our behalf. Hold your place there in Matthew and turn to the book of Ephesians for a moment. Ephesians chapter 2. Apostle Paul writing here, he says this. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Stop right there. You need, <clears throat> you need to realize, <clears throat> every one of us, at some point in our existence, found ourselves dead in our transgressions and sins. Everyone on the planet, from Adam until the person who was born just now, found themselves dead in their transgressions and sins. In which, Paul says, you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and its thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. Every single person whom God ever created because of the fall of man through Adam, the day you and I exited our mother's womb, we were enemies of the Most High God. And that's so not what God envisioned from the beginning. Yet in Jesus, he made the provision to bring his enemies, the objects of his wrath, you and I, back into fellowship, relationship, communion, community with himself. Look at verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and scattered us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us. How? In Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and this is not even of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, Paul says. The only way for us 
to understand what it means to love God is to understand what it means to not love God. We've got to understand who we were apart from Christ before we will ever have any understanding of who we are in Christ. And so I come back to the original question. What does it look like for you and me to love God? And the first evidence that we love God, the Bible says, is this. If we love God, we'll obey God. If we love God, we will obey God. Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, if you love me, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Whoever has my commands and obeys me, he is the one who loves me, Jesus says. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Then he says in John 15, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love if you obey my commands. You will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love i've told you this so that your joy may be so that joy may be in you my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete john writes in first john 2 but if anyone obeys his word then god's love is truly made complete in him this is how we know we are in him whoever claims to live in him must walk or live as jesus did The Bible says that the first evidence, the first way, the first thing we can point to that suggests we love God is that we obey Him. I mean, you can look at this from a human parent, human child standpoint. When your son or your daughter obeys what you ask him or her to do, there is very little else that proves their love for you more than that. Now, true, they can obey because we force them. They can obey for all sorts of warped reasons. But when a son or a daughter obeys out of a heart that desires to please dad and mom, there's very little that shows a depth of love greater than that. So the first way we know that we love God is if we love God, we will obey God. Okay, what's the second way we know we love God? There is no second way. There's nothing else. You say, oh, well, but, 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 but wait, there's other things in the Bible that says, do these, do this, don't do this, don't. Those all flow out of our desire to obey our Father. How else do we know if we love God? This is it. Here's the deal. If we truly love our Heavenly Father, we will obey what He said in Scripture. That's his word. That's his spoken word. If we truly love our Heavenly Father, we will do what he has said in the Bible. We will walk, we will live as he tells us to walk and live. We will walk and live as the example that he gave us. Walk and live as Jesus did. And when we live in obedience to our Heavenly Father, guess what? Everything else falls into place. Everything else falls into place. 
When we obey him, we will seek him. When we obey him, we will trust him. We will follow him. We will hunger for him. We will serve him. We will talk to him. We will listen to him. We will talk to others about him. We will thirst for him. We will spend time with him. When we obey him, we will abide in him. We will be content in him. We will find joy in him. We will give back to him. We will turn to him. Everything else in a love relationship with our Father stems from our willingness to obey Him. If we love God, Jesus said, we'll obey. This is why we refer around here to following Christ as a what? A long obedience in the same direction. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means to take God at his word, to take him seriously and to orient our lives in such a way that they are one expression after another of our love for our Father. How do we prove that? By obedience. How do we demonstrate our love? By obedience. How do we show the world we love? By obedience. Now, let me ask you this. Anyone here have this one down pat? Anyone anyone do this perfectly? Anyone here arrive yet in this area? Yeah, me neither. Me neither. But once we step across the line of faith, the first thing for us becomes loving God. The first thing, the most important thing, that thing which supersedes everything else is that we figure out what it means to love God. And according to the Bible, it means we live in obedience. Our lives from that point, from the point of the time when we step across the line of faith until we die and are with Him, is to be oriented around figuring out how to love this one who has first loved us. Maybe you, maybe some of you have never made the conscious choice to step across the line of faith, to trust Christ with your life, to begin a relationship with your Creator and Heavenly Father through Him. And so maybe, maybe this is sort of above your head right now. This is 101 Christianity, but maybe you need a remedial course to get you to where you can take 101 Christianity. That's okay. We were all at that point. Maybe your prayer this morning needs to echo the prayer of St. Teresa of Avila when she said, Oh God, I don't love you. I don't even want to love you. But I want to want to love you. Maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. You don't love God. You don't even really want to love God. You're here because someone drug you here because you're interested in networking or for any one of a number of other warped reasons you decided to come here. Glad you're here. But the reality is you really don't have much in you that wants to love God. But maybe there is a little spark in you that wants to want to love God. We all start there. Or maybe you're where I find myself these days. I stepped across the line of faith 28 years ago today, August the 16th, 1981. And there are days when had I known what this would involve, I wouldn't have stepped across the line. Oh. 
But there are more days that I'm glad I stepped across the line of faith. Because when a person steps across the line of faith, when a person accepts the payment from God for the moral indebtedness that their sin has incurred with him, it changes everything. And so I find myself today, 28 years removed from telling Jesus, I'll follow you. I find myself in the place that theologian Frederick Buechner described when he described himself as one who is on the way, though not necessarily very far along it, and who has at least some dim and half-baked idea of who to thank. That's where I am. I've been following for 28 years. I'm trying to figure this thing out. I'm trying to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. But I'm not very far along. But at least I have some dim and half-baked idea as to who to thank for where I am today. Our first thing is to love God. Nothing can supersede that. Just as if you're a pilot, nothing can supersede fly the plane first. And so over the next couple of weeks as we unpack our first thing, I hope you'll just figure out where you're at with God. I love the song that the band sang. It said, someday we'll trust him and learn how to see him. And someday he'll call us and we will come running and fall in his arms and the tears will fall down and we'll pray. If that's the cry of your heart, then you need to know you're in the right place because God has called us to love him with an unquenchable, insatiable love that grows every day. And so I invite you to continue in that partnership with him and with New Community. As we spend some serious time over the next three weeks thinking about, looking at, talking about how we can prove to God that we're actually doing what he's asked us to do. If we love him, we'll obey him. If you would please stand with me and I'll close us in prayer. Father, apart from you, um, we are nothing. And apart from you, we think we're something. But the truth is, apart from you, we do not know love. We invite you over the next few weeks to interact with us as only you can do through your word and through your Holy Spirit to bring us to the point of loving you by obeying you. Not just in the big things, but in the little things. Not just in the spiritual things, but the physical things. Not just in the personal things, 
but the relational thing. In every area of our life. For you know best, and you know us best. And now may we go here from this place today and prove to you that we love you by our obedience. And we pray and ask this and commit this to you in the name of Jesus, your Son and our leader and forgiver. Amen. Have a great afternoon. See you next week.